I am so glad we sang that song because that is a perfect, perfect introduction to our sermon. You are chosen. You are not forsaken. You are a child in your father's house, and we need to live that. We need to believe that. Let me tell you, it was interesting to sing it as a part of the one-man choir up here behind the praise team. The, uh, probably the poorest choir Carterville has ever fielded, you know. But it was neat for me, let me tell you why, to, to sing to Jesus and look at you. To have the opportunity to not be preaching or wondering what I'm about to say next, just to sing and to see your faces. And as the pastor, to know some of your stories, to know what some of you are dealing with this month, and watch you sing your praise to Jesus. Just bless my heart. You know, to sit up here and think about Savannah and Desmond and Clay and their families singing to Jesus. To think about some of us that are walking through struggles and sing to Jesus. That blessed me. I also want to uh, have a little flashback to the days when I used to sing in the Sugarlock Baptist Church Choir. <laughs> me and uh, six other consecrated holy rollers of all ages. I was a kid, and I thought it was cool to sing beside my dad. And so we had these little hard wooden fold-up chairs, and the choir in that day faced sideways, right? The ladies on one side, the men on the other. And we, I was on the men's side, but our choir was small enough, eventually we consolidated. We put everybody on one side, so all six of us sang from that side, from the, uh, the piano side. That said, shout out, I enjoyed singing in the church choir when I was a kid. So I invite you. I don't think there's an age cutoff. So if you are a kid or a youth or a college in our church, why don't you blow somebody away and sing in the choir? We would love to have you. All right. Turn your Bibles to Mark, Gospel of Mark. Turn to chapter 3. Today we're going to talk about community. In our sermon series on discipleship, we're talking about the, the nine ways that we measure discipleship at Carterville, the nine things that we're looking for here. And one of them is community. Are you growing in Christian community? So I want to kick that off with you. You know, as an intro, just sort of to set the stage for you, it has always been God's plan to create a people for himself, a family. If you think about it, like from the Garden of Eden through Abraham's journey, Moses calling Israel out, constituting a nation, a people, the people of Israel, Jesus starting the church. God has always, listen to me, always been bringing broken people into his family. Not because we deserved it, but because he is a gracious and generous father. Always. Old Testament, New Testament, beginning to end. God has been issuing his call to adoption to people like Abraham, who lied about his sister. Moses, who murdered an Egyptian. David, who messed up in huge ways. God has always been inviting us, not because we were righteous, clean, or good, but because he is a wonderful father with a huge house and wants to extend his grace to all of us. But when I read the scripture, I recognize that we struggle sometimes with the concept. So today I want to talk about redefining family. I want to talk about community in the church. Now, let me set it up this way. When I was young, I remember this was kind of a popular question. People said, hey, wait, 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 wait. Can I be a Christian and just not go to church? People have lots of reasons to want to do that. Some people would rather watch football on Sunday mornings or go fishing on Sunday mornings, go hunting on Sunday mornings, sleep in on Sunday mornings, just have a late brunch on Sunday mornings. So people would look up and say, hey, I want to be saved. I want to know God. I want to go to heaven when I die. 
and I want to be a reasonably good person. I want people to say nice things about me, but I don't want to be a part of a church, if you don't mind. Churches are full of hypocrites. So is Walmart, but you go there every week. So people say, can I be a Christian and not go to church? And that was a popular question. People have all kinds of reasons. I want to respond to that this way. Maybe you can. I don't know. I'm limited to what I read in the Bible. And in the Bible, you can't. Like the scripture, there's no example from Jesus of calling people to like isolated Christianity. Because all the metaphors that Jesus is using for salvation is that we would be part of a family. These are my brothers and my sisters. That we would be a body of Christ. Many parts, different gifts, but that we collectively come together. That we would be like holy sacred stones that build a new temple in 1 Peter and in Ephesians. The holy sacred stones that build a temple where God dwells. So the images in the New Testament of salvation and Christianity are that we are adopted into a family. Like there, it's not this long ranger mentality. And so today I want to challenge you. This is something that we preachers say all the time. And I want us to stop thinking this way. This came out of kind of our evangelism movement in America, in the West, where we were individualist thinkers. This is not wrong. It's just not biblical. As we're issuing the gospel, one thing we say to you all the time is this. If you'd been the only person in the world, the only one, Jesus would have died for your sins. So draw a circle around yourself right now. Just draw a circle around yourself. It's just you and Jesus. And let me ask you, today do you claim him as your Lord and your Savior? Will you walk with him? And those are true statements. Both of those, I think, are true statements. It's just that neither one of those were the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God has come to redeem all his people that will. And that when you're saved, you're adopted into a family, a messy one, with sisters and brothers, some of whom are knuckleheads and are still growing. So when we are saved, we're brought into a family. And today, I want to talk about what it looks like. So let's read. Mark chapter 3. This is where Jesus redefines family. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Uh, I'll just kind of, a little background there. I've preached this message before, not this same sermon, but this passage in 2019, I preached this to the church. But I want to make clear on this like word. What does it mean when Jesus is out of his mind? The Greek word that is used right there is exestima, which means, exestimi means that you, know, you can be astonished, like, whoa, amazed. Or it can mean, oh, you think we're crazy. You think we've lost our mind over this Jesus. It probably doesn't mean that his mom and dad thought, or his mom and his brothers thought he was like insane and needed to be committed. It probably just meant that they were looking up saying, man, you're not thinking straight. This ministry has gotten over your head. You're not even stopping to eat. The disciples aren't stopping to eat. Somebody needs to step in and bring you back to your senses, back to the status quo, back to a respectable life in the community that doesn't look quite so weird. We're going to step in and have a little family intervention. That's probably what's going on here. Let's keep, keep reading. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. You thought Abraham Lincoln made that up, didn't you? She's made up. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What I think is happening there is Jesus marching through the world, casting out demons, healing the cripple, feeding the hungry, and teaching people to turn from their sins and turn to God. He literally is binding up the strong man, tying Satan's hands and casting out demons. He is literally conquering territory and claiming lives that the devil thought were his. He is robbing Satan's house. I love it. Let's keep going. 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Did you know that? You can be forgiven any of your sins, your most despicable, shameful, embarrassing ones, any of them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. What does that mean? Well, blasphemy is to speak against. So in other words, if the Holy Spirit, in this case through the ministry of Jesus, is bringing redemption to your door and you refuse him, rebuke him, reject him, renounce him, speak against him, then you are closing off your one access to the forgiveness. The only sin you can't be forgiven of is turning away the one who's coming to forgive them. So why don't you open your heart to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit today and let all the other ones be forgiven. Let's finish our reading. Verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. In other words, at this moment, Israel's leaders, the Jewish teachers from Jerusalem, were actually guilty of a sin that was going to keep them out of heaven. They were keeping God at arm's length by refusing Jesus and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All right, verse 30. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Verse 31, back to the family. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. And now come on now, he doesn't need anybody to say, oh, Mary and... He didn't need anybody to remind. He knew who his mother and his brothers were. But he's starting to make everybody think because Jesus is about to redefine family so that you and I can recognize each other as brothers and sisters, that we're not just religious people that, start, that join a club together, that our lives are intertwined and intertangled as strong as blood, as much as family. He says this, then he looked at those seated in the circle around him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right, so in that boom, that moment, Jesus just redefined family. Like in that moment, Jesus just extended the strongest relational bond known on planet earth to anybody who wanted to gather around Jesus 
And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, begin to do the will of God together. Whoever would make Jesus king, whoever would come to God as father, now the brother. So have you ever wondered why in some churches people walk around and call each other brother and sister? You know, Sister Kathy, Brother Ken, you know, we don't do that a lot here. And, and, I'm, and that's fine. I think that's kind of past its season, right? We might, people might look at us weird. If we, Brother Jim, God bless you. Brother Kirby, Sister Ron. You know, it might be a little weird if we, if we kept up the, the brother and sister you know, out in public a whole lot longer. But, so we don't do that. But you, what, do you wonder where it came from? It, it's a memory evoking this truth that the church is supposed to be family, not country club. Not membership, not loyalties, not like we pay our dues, we participate together, we opt in, we opt out. No, 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 no. Family. And so I want to break this passage down. I want to walk through it. And as we do, I want us to redefine church family. And I want everybody in this church to think about what it means when we say that we are growing in Christian community together. The Bible talks about us belonging to each other. That we will bear with each other. That we will build each other up. We will carry each other's burdens. What does that language mean? Okay. First, this passage that I read to you, it's three parts, right? It's three chunks. This is a tool that Mark uses all the time. I don't know if you noticed it, but you entered, Mark introduced family, and then he like talked about the Pharisees a while, or the, the teachers of the law. Then... He came back around to family. Did you notice that? Like verse 20 and 21, his family says, oh wait, look, look how busy he is, right? We got to go, he needs intervention. He's not thinking clearly. And then you step away from that image, 22 through 24, it's all about the teachers of the law saying, oh, he's got a demon. He's got Beelzebub, right? And then 31 through 35 is back to family. So this is a, there's a funny nickname. You can write it down if you want to, right? The funny nick, there's fancy words, but the funny nickname that most Bible interpreters use when Mark does this, and Mark does it all the time, it's called a Markin sandwich. <laughs> you like that? It's like bun, meat, bun. My, my sons and Lindsay went to Chattanooga to see my sister-in-law uh, and my brother-in-law and my, and my nieces for a few days at the front end of their spring break. And my sons... I think, whatever, to each his own. My sons are big fans of Mr. Beast, the YouTuber. If you know who Mr. Beast is, would you raise your hand, please? I would like to know where my people are. All right, good. It makes me feel better, like we're not alone. Okay, because I thought, you're the only kids in the world. Well, you're not, guys. Good news, good news. There's other crazy people in our church. So they were in Chattanooga, and it turns out this guy's got a hamburger franchise, the Mr. Beast Burger. And my kids got a Mr. Beast Burger, and they said it was good. But I want you to imagine this Markin Burger, right? It's bun, meat, bun. So in this passage, the first layer is family, right? Mother and brothers say, he's not even stopping to eat. Like, people can't get in the houses where he is. This is getting a little out of control. What they don't know is he's only got three years to save the world. He doesn't have time for a nice, smooth, slow pace, right? And it just so happens that he is 100% Messiah, which Mary's known all along. He's got some very important work to do. But the family says, we've got to get a grip on this. That's your first layer. Your second layer, the the meat there, is this long expose with the teachers of the law, right? A kingdom divided, a house divided, cannot stand. You guys thinking I'm casting out evil spirits because of Satan. That's not true. I'm binding Satan. I'm stealing people back from him. This is where you need to be. You need to get on team Jesus, 
Right now, you're on team Beelzebub. You don't know it, but you're on the wrong team. Tell you what, I can forgive any sin these people bring to me, except one, the one y'all are guilty of. The only sin I can't forgive is the guy that mocks me and won't let me do my work. So that's your middle of the sandwich. And then the top is here comes the family back again. Same thing, right? The bun's the same. The family comes back and says, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. Would you, would you go talk to your mom and your brothers? And then Jesus drops the bomb where he says, who's my family? Anybody that does the will of my heavenly father, anybody that does the will of God, that is my new brothers and my mothers and sisters. By the way, doesn't mean he doesn't love his mother. Doesn't mean he doesn't love his brothers. Right? His brother, he, he had brothers that got saved and became like leaders in the church. Wrote letters in your New Testament. He, his mother was the last thing on his mind when he died on the cross. You know that like, old song, you know, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Maybe so. But I know Mary was because he looked at John and said, hey, behold your mother. Behold your son. Like one of the last things he did on the cross was make sure Mary was taken care of. So there's never a moment where Jesus said, I don't love my family anymore. But what he was clear about is, if I ever have to choose the will of God or making mama, mama proud, I'm going to go with the will of God. And as long as mama is on team Jesus, me and mama are going to be tight. But if daddy ever makes me choose, man, I'm always going with my heavenly father. And here's the deal. I extend that to everyone. So the, the point of a Markin sandwich is that the, the three layers help you interpret each other. In other words, that episode with the teachers of the law, this house divided, this Beelzebub business, it's not an interruption to the story. It's actually a lens that helps you read the whole thing correctly. Because Jesus knew that a lot of homes were going to be divided. I want you to see how real this was in the early church. Did you know that some of these earliest disciples that followed Jesus, their families were going to make them choose? Jesus or your family? That's a brutal reality. It happens today all over the world. There are people who, if they choose Jesus, they're kicked out of their family. They, they, they're not going to have help with college tuition. Nobody's going to be there at their wedding. If their car breaks down, nobody's coming to help them. All the things that families do, they lost it because they chose Jesus. And do you know where they would make up the gap? If there's any hope for them, you know where they're going to find some support? Here. Like in, in church family. This becomes literally their family. I'll show you. I'll show you. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out to preach. He's telling them to go into the villages. And he says some really weird things. He's preparing them for what's coming. Look at this. In verse 34 of Matthew 10, it's not going to be on your screen, but it is going to be in your Bible. If you need a Bible, a paper Bible, we have them outside the doors. They're yours for free. Please grab one. If you need a Bible, we want to give you one. Verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. We know he did. I heard the angels. But for some people, it's not going to be peace. Look at this. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Let me point this out. It wasn't his goal, but he knew it was going to be a result of his ministry. Jesus knew that when he preached in a city, some Jewish man was going to walk home that night and say, Dad, I met Messiah Jesus today, and I'm ready to follow him for the rest of my life. And that dad was going to say to him, No son of mine will. Your uncle, your uncle, my brother, 
leads the synagogue. He's a Pharisee, and you know where the Pharisees stand on this man. Blasphemer. That Jesus is a blasphemer. I'm telling you this, son, and you get this, you get it straight right now. You will not bring shame on this family and on your uncle and on my name by following that Jesus. If you do, if you do, you're no son of mine, so you choose today, son, that Jesus or this family. And in that way, a sword fell in that house. Not because Jesus brought it, that father brought it, but he would divide households. And it's sad but true. He said in verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is hard, but your family is your strongest loyalty on earth. And when it, when it resonates with the glory of God, you can walk in it, delight in it, enjoy it, and it's beautiful to watch. But if you live in a family where a son says, Mom and Dad, if you stay with this church stuff, I'm not calling again. Or if you live in a family where Dad says, Son, I just, I'm tired of you being a Jesus freak. It's time to calm down. If you ever have to choose, choose Jesus. And I wonder, will the church be there to catch you? Because that's what Jesus wants. Is that this would become your new family. That when you needed support, somebody to pray with you, somebody to hold your hand, somebody to tell you how to grow up, somebody to show you the next, the next bend in the road, you'd find it right here in the other people who followed Jesus together. And look, this is heavy, but look in verse 38 of Matthew 10. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I've never thought about it like this, but listen, taking up your cross, dying to yourself in Matthew 10 is directly connected to me being able to say, I'm for Jesus before my family. As powerful and much, as much as I love my kids, as much as I love my parents, in this verse, taking up your cross and dying to yourself is connected to dying to family members that won't let you follow Jesus. That blows my mind. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I hope it never comes to it for you. But what Jesus is teaching you is that even your strongest loyalties on earth, coaches, teachers, parents, family, friends, when they tell you to stop following Jesus, you got a choice to make. You better choose Jesus. A couple of things that are interesting to me. In the first layer, the family heard about all the ministry of Jesus and the disciples couldn't eat. And so they said, he's not thinking straight. In, in the middle layer, when the teachers of the law are against Jesus, that house divided... It says that the teacher said he's got a demon. You know, it turns out that in this moment, there's the potential for family and for false teachers to be dividing the house of God. Now, thankfully, in the family of Jesus, it eventually got sorted out. But with most of these teachers of the law, it didn't. So here's a couple of things that I want to help us think about together. What does this mean for us today? Well, the first thing I want you to know is that Jesus literally redefined family. And I need you to understand this. If we're going to get what he meant and really live it out like saved people should, then suddenly class, race, background, nationality, education, economics, those things no longer group us. One thing groups us, in Jesus or out. And if you're in Jesus, you're my family. 
We should have more kinship to believers in North Korea who are persecuted and poor than we do to pagans who live right down the street to us and cheer for the same football team. Now, I know it doesn't feel that way culturally, but we've got to remind ourselves that that is the eternal truth of Jesus. Families redefined. Second, I need some of you know, to need to know, I need some of you to know that the words that Chris had us saying is exactly right. You are chosen, not forsaken. Listen to me. There are zero orphans in God's family. You belong here. I don't care if you were the prodigal that just came home or the older brother that's been having a self-righteous pity party in the backfield. You need to come home. I need you to know there are no orphans. We are on equal footing, sons and daughters of God. Doesn't matter how long you've been here. Doesn't matter if you just walked in. If you are in Christ Jesus, you and I, sisters, brothers, you belong here. This is your family. This is your church. You're not borrowing it. You're not just cruising through. You're not sitting in the back eavesdropping. We're your people. This is where you belong. And I'm as proud of that as I can possibly be. And I need you to believe it. And I need you to walk through, walk in it. So if you feel like you don't deserve Jesus or you don't deserve God, none of us do. None of us do. And I need everybody in here to hear me say, man, Jesus redefined family and he's in charge of this house. So if he said it, we're going to do it. Next thing I need you to know, I need you to stop and think about what does it mean that the house could be divided? I mean, Abe Lincoln made those words famous. Jesus said them first. Literally, literally, God's people, Israel, was divided at this moment. Think about it. Think about it, right? Here is the Messiah from heaven. Here's the Messiah, Jesus, standing in the middle of his people. And the people of God are coming out of Jerusalem, these teachers, and they're telling him to go home. They're telling him he has a demon. Like literally, God is moving among his people to save them and to save the world. And people who are walking around carrying the name of God, teachers of the law, preachers like me, are coming to Jesus and splitting God's house. The house of God was divided. Remarkably, they're saying, you know, oh, you're here, Satan casting out Satan. And Jesus says, you know, house divided, cannot stand. Well, it turns out that Satan's house was not divided at all. Dadgummit, but God's house was. Right? Religious people are fighting here, not listening to Jesus. Sadly, we can still do the same thing. And listen to this. He was right. A house divided cannot stand. Forty years later, the temple burned. And, and these leaders, the way they knew what God was up to, fell. And the movement of Jesus kept going on. And God's family kept growing. But these teachers fell divided and fell out. I don't want that to happen here. Like I, I, don't, I don't want our preferences and personalities to divide the house. Man, look, Romans 12 is so clear that part of being church family is that we have to learn to get over our selfish pride and our preferences. We have to learn to put up with each other. Literally, the Bible tells us to be patient with each other. You know why it says that? Because some of y'all test our patience. It says to bear with each other. That's like patience on steroids, right? Because some of us are, are hard to handle for a while. But that's actually part of discipleship. Like learning to forgive you, learning to forgive me. Like learning to still love me even when I'm a pain in your neck. That is part of following Jesus. You see, here's the deal. You can't be a Christian out there by yourself and do it the way Jesus wants because we're family. And he wants his sisters and brothers to love each other well. That's part of how he teaches us to love him. That's part of how he does what he's doing inside you. 
need a church that's a little hard to get along with sometimes. It's good for you. But don't make it worse. But I need to make sure this house is not divided. I want to make sure that in this generation and the one to come, fifth graders, I need you to hear me. When you guys are 30, when y'all are deacons, when y'all are Sunday school teachers, when y'all are the preachers here, don't let this house be divided. This, this family is never about preferences or pride or my name or yours. This belongs to Jesus, and we will not split it. So what on earth does this mean? I want you to start thinking about what it means for you to be family. This is why those sacred Baptist casseroles matter. This is silly, but you know, in the Baptist tradition, if you're part of church and people know you, sometimes if uh, somebody in your family dies... Very likely, a Baptist lady from your Sunday school class is going to show up at the doorstep with what? With a casserole. She's trying to love on you. And it, that little act of love honestly goes a long way. You know why? Because that's what families do. This is why that phone call, somebody saying, hey, I heard you had a test coming up with a doctor and I just want to pray with you today. From a Sunday school teacher. Or from the lady that sits down the pew from you. Or from the man that holds the door for you every Sunday. This is why that phone call and that text matters and it's worth it. This is why making time to check on each other. And the preacher cannot do it all. I promise you, I will disappoint you to the infinite degree. But I'm telling you that if we will love each other in this church well, this is part of what family does. Just ask yourself, if they were my brother, would I call them? Well, then call them. If they were my sister, would I care? Well, then care. And the people that God's grouping you with, the people that God's gathering around you here, like they're your family. I have a challenge for our small groups. And I looked at the time and realized that I need to wrap this thing up. Can I get an amen? I have a challenge for your small groups. You know, it's easy when we've been doing Sunday school since 1926, right? That's been a minute. You realize we're about to turn 100. When we've been doing Sunday school forever here, it's easy to allow those groups to just become a one-hour Sunday morning gathering where we teach the Bible and pray for each other for a minute. I want to push you harder than that. I want to ask our Sunday school group leaders to try to create community where we love each other, where those groups are connected like family. Once every, for you, that might mean that once every six weeks you go to somebody's house after church and have lunch together. might look like on a Friday night you guys hang out and watch a ball game or, or it might be that you go fishing once in a while, or might be, I have no idea what it looks like. But what would it look like for us as small groups to really try to create authentic community where we love each other and hear each other? Where we're praying. For, some of you guys are already crushing this. There's some small group leaders in here that you're my heroes in how well you do this. But what would it look like for us to remember that church is family? That's what I'm calling. And I'm going to remind us of this. There's no age limits on this. If you're a fourth grader, this is your family. Love the people when they come in. Be kind to the other fourth graders that walk in. If you're a high school student, every Wednesday night when you come for worship and you bring your friends, like look around. Like love the people that are sitting around you. College students, we want to be family to you while you're here. Like we want to be a safe place and a support system. Young adults, I mean, we want to help you figure out marriage. We want to walk with you. 
I just want to encourage you. It doesn't matter what age you are. Like love the people around you and recognize them as your family. Care about them. Build this family. Invest in this family. But if you're looking at your Christian discipleship, at your path with Jesus, and you realize that, man, you've been living a pretty holy life, but you're not loving your neighbor. You're not family. I want to challenge you. Love your family well. I want to pray for you, and then I want to invite you to come to the altars to come speak with me. Come lift up your family. Pray. Ask God to move in a powerful way. Ask God to give you family here. Ask God to show you who to love, that you, who you should reach out to here. But let's ask God to build a community in this church that is authentic and healthy and strong, built around Jesus, doing the will of God together. Let's pray. Father, we ask your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.